The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're going to learn how mindfulness, yes, mindfulness, might affect how elite athletes respond to stress. But first, we'll hear from Alex Hutchinson about his new book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And in my free time, I'm a distance runner. In my training, I spend a lot of time suffering to various degrees and in various ways, all trying to beat my own best time in an arbitrary distance that I'd probably never have to take on in the wild, even if I was being chased by wolves. But I still do it. And I'm not alone. Millions of people around the world participate in endurance sports, trying constantly to be stronger, faster, better. We just saw some of the latest and greatest show the world what they could do at the Winter Olympics. So what are the limits of human performance? How fast we can run or bike? What's the limit for how high the human body can climb or how deep it can swim? If you've ever asked these questions, there is now a book for that. It's by Alex Hutchinson. He's a columnist for Outside Magazine and a former columnist for Runner's World. He's also written for the New York Times, The New Yorker, and other impressive publications. On the athletic side, he was a two-time finalist in the Canadian Olympic trials for the 1500 meter and finishes a marathon in about half the time that I do. And now he's got a book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, out on February 6th. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on the show, Bethany. I'm really, uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm just going to start by saying I have so many questions. I took so many notes, and the whole thing was just a huge pile of athletic nerddom. And I have no idea how I'm going to limit this to a single interview, but I got to try my best. <laughs> that sounds perfect. That's what I like to hear. Now, I'm going to start by asking what exactly are the big factors that determine how fast we go and for how long? Well, it, you know, there's a bunch of different factors that work together. And the one that leaps to mind for most people first is oxygen. How much oxygen can you get and how quickly can you get it to your muscles? Because uh, it, in order to run, you need to have oxygen supplying your muscles. And as soon as you get off off the couch, you'll notice that you start breathing heavily, heavily. And if the harder you run, the more you breathe heavily. So for a lot of people, that's the first limit they're conscious of, that and pain in their legs. So subjectively, getting enough oxygen and having your legs not hurt is what we feel like the limits are. But in fact, it turns out to be a lot more complicated than that. And when you were talking about oxygen, one of the things that exercise physiologists used to, and to some extent still rely on as the main measure of athletic capability is something called VO2 max. What is that and why does it matter? So the, the jargon is, so VO2 max, what it refers to is the volume of oxygen, the maximum volume of oxygen that you can take from the air, breathe into your lungs, transfer into your bloodstream, deliver it to your muscles, and then use. Um, so the more oxygen you can deliver at a given moment, or at, at, you know, in, in a given in a given amount of time, the faster you can run without reaching exhaustion. So if you have a VO2 max of 80 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute of body weight, you'll be able to essentially run twice as fast or go twice as far as someone whose VO2 max is only 40, who can't get as much much oxygen to their muscles. And so this concept was developed back in the in the 1920s, and it, it seemed for a while that it was going to be. It, 
the kind of answer to, oh, now we know what the limits of each individual person are. We know it's almost like we don't even have to have the Olympics anymore. We can just take you to the lab, measure your VO2 max, and we know who's going to be faster and who's going to be slower. But it, it, you know, it turns out that that's, that's not quite true. Uh, there's other factors, both physiologically and uh, in the brain that, that determine who actually wins the race. Well, and also I have to say, like just bringing a bunch of people into the lab and testing their VO2 max really lacks a certain amount of like crowd appeal. Yeah, it's maybe not the best spectator sport, and it's also probably not as much fun for the athletes. There's, there's a one of the papers I came across in researching the book was from the 1960s, or there's a series of papers by researchers in South Africa, and they were making the case that yeah, it's really expensive to send, send athletes all the way from South Africa or around the world to compete at these events. So we're we're developing these testing protocols, including VO2 max, that will tell us whether the athletes can 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 really compete for a medal at you know at the Olympics or or other competitions. And my, you know, my thought when I when I read this was like, well, that kind of sucks for the athlete who might have really wanted to go to the Olympics, even if he or she wasn't going to you know win the Olympics. So obviously, there's more to sport than uh, than first of all than who's got the biggest VO2 max, but also than than whether or not you're going to actually win a medal. Now you said that VO2 max is the amount of oxygen that you can get through your lungs into your bloodstream to your muscles. Basic physiology here: what is happening with the oxygen getting to our muscles when we're you know, running, sprinting, cycling, walking. What's going on? So the the, the real goal here is you, we all eat food and we transform that food into it. Well, that food is a form of fuel, and it gets and it, it it's what provides the fuel that allows our muscles to contract. But there's different ways of transforming food energy into muscle contraction. And some are more efficient than others, and some are more rapid than others. So there's some chemical reactions that require oxygen to turn food energy into muscle contraction, and they're very efficient. So that's what you want to do if you're going to run a marathon. You want to be using this oxygen-dependent pathway, this aerobic energy. There's other ways of turning food energy into, into, uh, into muscle contractions that are much more rapid. You can get that energy more quickly, and they don't re- require oxygen. But they produce metabolic waste products that cause us to slow down and run out of energy and and feel tired more rapidly. So when you're sprinting, you don't really care how much oxygen you have when you're when you're sprinting 100 meters. You could hold your breath and it wouldn't really make much difference. Um, but you can't sustain that level uh, of of effort. So the key point with getting oxygen to your muscles is to allow you to to use the efficient muscle contractions for as long as possible, so you don't turn to these anaerobic uh, forms of energy that generate uh, waste products and force you to slow down. And what are these waste products that are forcing us to slow down? Yeah, that, so I, I was kind of using a euphemism there saying, oh, metabolic waste products. What I'm really talking about here in some ways is lactic acid. And you know, most people who've done exercise have heard this idea that, oh, I was, I was running so hard that there was lactic acid in all my muscles and they were burning up. They were burning up. If I'd kept going, my muscles would have just melted off the bone and, and, I, and you know, I'd be a pool of, of, of nothing on the ground. Lactic acid is is kind of a, a villain that that got a bad name for itself, and it, it's only slowly being rehabilitated. It, you, in, in fact, you don't actually end up with lactic acid in your body. You you end up with lactate ions and, and protons, which outside the body form lactic acid. But in in your body, you have actually what's called lactate, and it is a signal in your muscles. It does trigger signals to your brain that make you feel tired, that make you feel discomfort and pain and helps to force you slow down. But it's also a really valuable fuel. It's it's a it's a byproduct of of hard exercise that then gets recycled to provide fuel for more exercise. So lactate is kind of a double-edged sword in that in that it's it it 
causes you to slow down, but it also allows in the best athletes, uh, they have a really uh, highly developed ability to reuse lactate as 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 more fuel. So um, it's not the case that there's like acid in your veins that's causing you that's forcing you to slow down. It's more that these metabolic waste products are signals uh, that that sound alarms in your brain and and make it feel like things are getting really hard to try and force you to slow down uh, to protect yourself essentially. And one of the things I found particularly interesting that I learned from your book is that you have these signals kind of telling you to slow down. And you might think you are giving your all, you are running your fastest, you could not possibly run any faster than you're running now, but you're not. And this turns out to be common. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the U-shaped performance curve that is the curse of many of us. (laughs) Yeah, you know, this is the sort of big, big uh, mystery that sort of motivated my whole pursuit of this book, this idea of maybe there's more in reserve. even when we think we're going all out. So, so I, I'm like many people in that in some of my best races, you know, I'd be in the middle of the race and be like, Oh, I'm going so hard. I, I, this is as fast as I can go. And then you turn the corner and see the finish line and think, Hey, there it is. And you start sprinting and you think, Oh, I had such a good sprint for the last, you know, few minutes of that race. I, that means I was holding back too much. I should have gone harder sooner. I, I was, I was, I was, I didn't pace myself correctly. But what's really fascinating is that if you look at the, the pacing records of world records or, or the pacing patterns of world records over the year, that's exactly how world records are set. So it's not a, a mistake to have this sprint at the end. This seems to be a, a hardwired pattern that even when you think you're going as hard as you can, uh, you're able to then recruit a little bit of that hidden uh, reserve of energy towards the end that your brain has been uh hiding from you essentially out of self-preservation and only when it knows that you're about to finish the race does it release this and this and there've been some great studies even with little kids trying to figure out when this pacing pattern develops and you know if you're like a, a 6-year-old or an 8-year-old and you're asked to go run a race that lasts a few minutes or run as hard as you can you just run like a like like you have no foresight you you sprint off and then by the end you're you're walking but by the time you're about 11 or 12 you've already started to automatically adopt this u-shaped pace pattern where you start fast then you settle into a, a, a slower pace and then when you see the finish line again uh something is unlocked even when you know it's not deliberate it's not like you're trying to save energy for the for the finishing sprint it's just that's the way we're wired to run. That was actually uh, a really interesting point for me was thinking about the kids because it's true. I mean, they just, they give their all until they drop. Do we know what changes when kids hit 10 or 11? Is it a physiological change? Is it a brain change? So lots of debate and controversy about this, about the extent to which this is voluntary and conscious and just that they're getting smarter. They they remember. It's like, oh wait, if I sprint as hard as I can, uh, you know, for, you know, for the first two minutes, then I'm not going to be able to sustain it for four minutes. So some of it is undoubtedly a consequence of experience of uh, of having having had those experiences of sprinting too hard at the beginning in previous uh, you know races or or runs, and and then learning that it's better to hold back a little bit, and then because. It's always an un- pacing yourself is always kind of a, an uncertain. Uh, it's not like a, a high pre- precision activity. You always save a little margin of error, and as a result, you learn that it's better to be to err on the side of caution. And as a result, you always have a little bit of reserve left over at the end. So you can explain this pattern as as something that kids learn, and by the time they're eleven, they're smart enough to say, "Okay, let's be a little cautious." Or you can you can also find evidence that that maybe it's it's something that 
happens despite despite what we're trying to do. That even if you try not to save any effort or to save any reserve for the end, it's very hard not to. It's very hard to fully exhaust yourself even if you uh, are conscious of this fact that you're trying not to. And a lot of this comes down to the way that pacing comes down to the way that people spend their effort. And so I was wondering if we could talk just a little bit about effort, because effort is is subjective, sort of, <laughs> but it's also kind of measurable a little. What is effort? Yeah, it, you know, and I would say one of the most interesting thing that's ha- things that's happened over the last decade in this area of physiology is the recognition that effort isn't just this sort of, you know, fuzzy byproduct that you can ask people, does this feel hard or easy? That it's something that's pretty quantifiable, that people are really able to reliably say, this feels like an 8 out of 10 effort, and this feels like a 6 out of 10 effort. And the effort is different than pain. Like, you can be trying very, very hard, but not feel any pain, but just reach the point where you're, you're, you're trying as hard as you can. And conversely, you can be in a lot of pain, but you're not really trying that hard. So I had an experience in a marathon where my legs got really pounded. Uh, I had a lot of muscle damage in my quads because I wasn't really ready for the distance. And so in the end of that marathon, it would really hurt. My, 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 my quads were screaming, but I wasn't actually trying that hard. It felt easy, but painful. So effort is a, is a, is a, is basically one definition is it's, it's the struggle to continue against a mounting desire to stop. It's this sense, not that it's necessarily painful, but it's just, it's difficult to, to keep doing what you're doing will be challenging. And it, it, it's affected by a lot of different, it's kind of a, a global measure of what's going on in your body. Because if, if you're out of breath, if your legs are hurting, uh, if you're starting to overheat, all these things a- add into this sense of effort that make things, make things feel a little bit harder or easier. And so, there's an art, there's a school of thought these days that says that effort is really the only thing that matters. Ultimately, if you want to know how fast you can run or whether you can keep going or speed up or whether you need to slow down, all that matters is, matters is how hard does it feel? If it feels as hard as you can go, then you can't go any harder. And if it doesn't, then you can still keep going or speed up. And you talked a little bit about how effort, feelings of effort change based on, you know, physical factors. But you also in the book divide effort into mental and physical buckets. What are the kind of mental and physical buckets of effort? Yeah, so I mean, there are mental and physical contributions to effort, but ultimately they they overlap and they they all go into the same big barrel if we, if we kind of extend the metaphor. So one of the experiments that I found most fascinating was uh, an experiment on mental fatigue back in 2009 by a, a, a scientist named Samuel Marcora, where he asked people to do essentially a very simple computer task. You know, they're sitting in front of a, a screen, uh, letters and symbols are flashing on the screen, they have to press one button or another depending on what letters or symbols show up. It's, it's very easy, but it requires a lot of concentration. So they did that for about 45 minutes. And compared to people who did a control task that didn't require a lot of concentration, um, so that the other the control group was just watching a, a, a you know a documentary. The, the the group that did this mentally fatiguing task, then in a in a in a physical test in a in a bike ride to exhaustion, they immediately reported a higher sense of effort. It was harder to pedal the bike at a given effort level just because they'd been sitting at a computer tapping keys, and and so they performed worse and reached exhaustion sooner. So what this told us, which is sort of intuitive but still sort of surprising to me, is that. Pure mental effort. There was no physical effort involved. Pure mental effort can lead 
to changes in your physical performance. And so that's an example of how um, the, the effort required to do a physical task is influenced by the effort required to do a mental task. And they all are pouring into the same bucket of there's only so much effort you're able to, to, to exert. But this effort at the mental task, this is not the same as um, studies, for example, in ego depletion. That's an interesting question. Um, it's it's one of those things where if you talked to uh, different scientists, they would probably explain the same f- phenomena in with different words in some cases. So, um, so Samuel Marcora, who did this mental fatigue study, he would likely explain some of the ego depletion results uh, in a different context. He would say, well, it's not like there's this magical quantity called ego. It's that they're becoming mentally fatigued and it's changing their, their effort level. I, I, I don't know to, to what extent you can say they're talking about the same thing but using different words or whether they're mutually exclusive theories. Uh, but I think there are a lot of similarities. There's 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 parallels in, in certainly the predictions of both theories are the same, It's but it's different ways of explaining them that, that may have different consequences in some cases. And I was wondering about that because there are a lot of people who now kind of question the concept of ego depletion and the whole concept of like willpower depletion because there have been some problems with replication there. Um, but I mean, it seems like the, the tasks that you described in your book are, are much harder than like some of the ego depletion tasks, which include things like, you know, resisting cookies for 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> the, the effort tasks that, that you kind of describe, I mean, they're hours long. They're really long. Yeah. Although, I mean, there is, again, there, there's crossover in this research. Like there's, there's some ex- exercise physiology research where, um, and hopefully this isn't going to get too graphic for, for your listeners, but, they they uh they they had people watch a, a disgusting video that uh involved a, a woman Oh my goodness, you described that video in the book. It was awful. Oh god, la la yeah. la. Okay, la, so la, I won't, la, I won't la, go into more details. That. Oh. Let's just say it's a it's a bad video. It's a, so a, a video that no no one would want to watch. <laughs> and and half the people they said just watch it and the other people they said watch it but suppress showing any emotion. Don't don't uh show a face of disgust or anything and they found that the act seemingly suppressing the face of disgust used up so either depleted their ego quote unquote or uh, incurred some mental fatigue and as a result they performed worse in a subsequent uh, cycling test so you know there's different theoretical constructs and i don't think we know the answers as to 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 w- w- what's what um, and as, as you say, there's a lot of controversy about the extent to which some of these phenomena e- even exist. Um, but I think there, there are some interesting results that are hard to, that, that, that need some sort of explanation and, and whether we found the right theoretical explanation for, for what's happening in these studies, uh, is, is still, uh, uh, you know, up in the air. And so we talked about <laughs> that disgusting video. Oh god. <laughs> but let's 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 move to something a little less painful and talk about pain. Because <laughs> one of the chapters that I think people can both relate to and kind of feel horrified by a little was the chapter on pain. Um really, we don't want to exercise because it hurts. I mean, let's be real, exercise hurts and a lot of endurance is pushing through pain. And I mean, sometimes that's bleeding feet. Sometimes it's aching quads. Um, you know, sometimes it's, I don't know, a pounding headache or there's lots of different kinds of pain. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the connection between pain and fatigue. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, let me just say the, the first thing is that there's lots of research showing that athletes are indeed better at tolerating pain. 
But that same research shows that they feel pain the same as everyone else. So the the pain threshold, the point at which you know, if, if you give if you give people electric shocks and, and gradually turn up the intensity, the point at which an athlete says, "Hey, that hurts," is going to be the same, roughly the same as as a non-athlete. The difference is that the athlete is going to sit there for a lot longer while the intensity keeps ramping up before he or she says, "Okay, I can't take it anymore." And and it's people are still trying to figure out where you know exactly what's happening or why that takes place but the i think the leading theory is that it isn't some sort of special like the pain doesn't disappear for athletes but they learn through repeated exposure they learn better psychological coping techniques they learn to take their mind off pain they learn to take the emotion out of pain and say oh my legs hurt that doesn't mean that my legs are going to fall off it just means it's giving me information that this pace is probably not sustainable so they're able to Take in the information from pain without uh, overreacting to the to the emotional content of it. So, uh, you know, I, I think that's really a really powerful message to keep in mind. Um, for one thing, I, th- I think it's one of the key and sort of underappreciated benefits of regular training. It, it's, it's why exercise is, is is sometimes recommended for conditions like chronic pain. Um, because exercise teaches you to handle pain better. So if you, if someone gets up off the couch and starts training for a year, a year later, they will definitely be physically fitter. Their body will have changed, but they will also have changed their ability to tolerate a given level of discomfort. And, and those, and that ability is probably transferable to other areas of life to, to, you know, to sitting in the, you know, a cramped airplane seat with, with someone screaming next to you or, or, or whatever the case may be. So, so I think pain, you know, pain is intrinsic to endurance activities, but that learning to tolerate it is actually one of the sort of greatest and most uh, least appreciated benefits of endurance activities. And, and like you said, it's different from effort. It's some, some things are, are painful, but some things can be, uh, some things are difficult to do despite the fact that they're not painful. And other things can be very painful, but they're still, still quite easy. So it's, it's, it's worth understanding the difference. And effort is probably is, is usually what limits you. Pain is just information. Uh, at least, you know, okay, there's situations where pain becomes more extreme than that. But for the most part, pain pain is a warning sign rather than a real limiting factor. Alex, when people start running and trying races, they often ask me questions, but they don't ask me questions about their muscles or pain or their VO2 max. They ask me questions about how much they should drink and what they should eat. So I was very especially floored when I read in your book that people used to think you should not drink and run at the same time. Even during a marathon, you shouldn't drink water at all. It blew my mind. <laughs> Why it's, do they think that? Yeah, I mean, it sounds crazy now. And, and, you know, you can look back at these, you know, guides from 100 years ago giving this this crazy advice. But it's actually, it's, it's the, the advice persisted until a lot more recently than that. I mean, it, and you know, even up till the 60s or and, and 70s, people were, there was no like water stops at marathons and people might just get one or two sips uh, along the way from a, a spectator. And, you know, when I was a kid in the 80s, we certainly were given to understand that, oh, if you, if you eat right before or during exercise or drink too much, you'll, you'll get cramps. And the thing is, there's some truth to that. There, so, you can understand how this advice, uh, you know, started. People would eat and then they'd go or eat a lot, go and run and get a, get a stomach ache and say, well, it's obviously bad to eat and run. But what they're missing is the fact that, okay, it can be difficult to, to eat, uh, to, to take in calories and, and fluid, a lot of fluid if you're running, but it can have a big benefit. 
And there are ways you can you can optimize what you're eating and drinking so that it doesn't provoke as much stomach distress. I mean, I think to me, the, the real message here is that a lot of advice persists, be, not because of any good evidence, but because, you know, some famous athlete says, I do this, you know, let, let's say that, you know, the greatest runner of 1880 is saying, oh, yeah, and you could look back at advice from the 1880s. And it's like, it's really important never to take, you know, warm baths and, you know, you must shave only every third day or whatever um, and never eat. And so that stuff, no one has any evidence to the contrary. So it just becomes the de facto, um, you know, rules for how to run. And we'd like to think we're smarter than that now. But but uh, I think there's still an awful lot of that uh, go around these days whenever there's, um, you know, Athletes, athletes giving celebrity endorsements and stuff. We, we often take it at face value when really it just happens that Tom Brady is really good at football and he has some advice to sell us about, you know, how much water to drink and so on. But there has been science looking at hydration and most particularly looking at kind of how, what the percentage of dehydration a runner can take, right? Like, what are the current ideas on dehydration during running? Well, they're all over the map, and, and this is a, an area of, of super controversy. So the rule of thumb that I was always taught when I was younger was if you, if you, are, if you lose 2% of your body weight uh, it, but through sweating, your performance is going to suffer. Um, and that's probably true under some circumstances. But these days, there's a, there's a split between people who think – Almost any amount of dehydration, even less than two percent, is going to compromise your your performance because you know your your blood volume is going to decrease. That's going to make it a little bit harder to pump oxygen to your muscles, and so even subtle dehydration is going to, is going to have negative effects on your physical performance and your cognitive performance. Versus others who say, "Hey, you can you can handle ten percent dehydration." If you're thirsty, drink. And if you're not thirsty, don't worry about it, at least in the short term. I mean, over the course of, say, you know, three hours, you don't, you don't need to worry about how de dehydrated you get. All that really matters is how you feel. If you feel thirsty, you're going to, uh, your brain is going to be slowing you down because thirst is just a warning sign that you need to uh, get more fluid. And if you don't feel thirsty, don't worry about it. And, and the truth is they've done measurements on people on like Haley Gaber Selassie is an Ethiopian runner who set the world marathon record a couple of times. And in, and one of those races, they measured his weight before and after the race and he lost 10% of his body weight. And this is a guy who set a world record in a marathon. So it's hard to say, Oh, well, his, he would have been even faster if he'd been only 2% dehydrated. Like he went faster than anyone in history had gone. So. Um, so, I mean, so the upshot is there, there's a lot of controversy and, and the studies to do this are quite challenging. It's, it's difficult to, to tease apart thirst from dehydration. I actually wanted to follow up with that question. You know, many people, you, you hear that, well, thirst is, is a sign of dehydration and therefore you should drink. And then there's, you know, studies saying, well, no, actually dehydration is, is separate from thirst. What is the difference between dehydration and thirst? So, it, on, you know, the simplest way of saying it is, Thirst is the feeling that you would like to have a drink. Uh, dehydration is the physiological state of having lost fluid. But it gets even a little more complicated than that because you can say, all right, let's say I lose a little bit of fluid to sweat. Um, am I dehydrated or if I'm still within the normal range? Because your body can adapt to losing some fluid. It can adjust, uh, you know, its electrolyte balance and, and make sure that your cells still have all the fluid they need. And your body's actually very good at doing that to make sure that as far as your, your blood and your cells are concerned, they're still appropriately hydrated. So, um, what constitutes damaging dehydration or, or de dehydration that would hinder you is, is up in the air. But basically, thirst is the feeling. Dehydration is the, is the physi physiological state. And, and the fundamental problem with the last century of hydration research is that it hasn't distinguished between those two. 
So there'll be studies where they say, okay, we wanted to test the effects of 2% dehydration. So we're going to either give people a diuretic or we're going to put them in a heat chamber and make them walk for a few hours. And then we're going to start the study without, and we're not going to let them drink. So we're going to see what 2% dehydration does. And the problem is those people are dehydrated because they've had a diuretic or they've been in a heat chamber for several hours, but they're also thirsty. So you're not really testing whether allowing them to, to quench their thirst uh, would, would uh, improve the performance or whether you know the dehydration itself is something that's going to hurt the performance. So I, I would say like 99% of hydration research at, from the last century hasn't distinguished between, these, between those two things. So there's a lot of very strong opinions on dehydration right now, but there's actually not a whole lot of evidence that is actually even capable of saying, okay, let's well, let's find out what the actual difference is between dehydration and thirst. There are a few studies starting to emerge where they do things like hydrate people using uh, pl- placebo, like blinded placebo controlled intravenous drips. So it's, so they don't, people don't know whether they're hydrated because they haven't drunk. All they, they, they have no idea whether the, the needle in their arm is delivering fluid or not. And those studies tend to show that you can be a lot more dehydrated than you might think and still not have any negative effects on your performance as long as you don't know that you're dehydrated. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that you know, you know, when in the start of your your thirst chapter, which was super educational, there's you know the fact that you know people used to think you shouldn't drink water during a marathon at all, but now actually the pendulum has really swung in favor of so much hydration that people die of too much of it. Yeah, and that's that's a real consequence of starting to ignore this it's of believing that our bodies are incapable of giving us useful signals of, of thinking that thirst is totally irrelevant and so that for a while the the messaging was was so powerful that oh if you're out there running especially if it's a little bit warm you need to drink early drink often drink every opportunity you get by the time you feel thirsty it's too late um and that resulted in a in a few people dying of a condition called hyponatremia which basically is the result of of drinking too much water it's not super common, and it's and usually there's some underlying condition that's that 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 may predispose people to to uh, to, to to developing this condition. But it's definitely it's it's definitely enough of a problem that that the message has really started to be dialed back. Uh, so you'll find that marathons are no longer saying drink every time you can get the opportunity. They're saying you know drink uh, you know make sure you're drinking enough. But what enough is, is a really, the problem is it becomes a really difficult thing to individualize because people sweat at different rates. They're running for different durations of time. You know, how much a five hour marathoner needs to drink is very different from how much a two hour marathoner needs to drink. So it becomes very hard to give, uh, concise advice. And so, um, but, but yeah, the, 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 the advice to drink as much as possible, I think was a sort of over enthusiasm of the nineties that, that people have backed away from now. Well, and there was also a um, idea that hydrating, drinking water could help keep you cool, that this would actually help kind of lower your core body temperature, right? Yeah, and that's, uh, I would say that's probably still, if you were to go to the American College of Sports Medicine annual meeting, which has 5,000 scientists there and took a, take a poll, that's probably still a majority opinion there um, that's been sort of inculcated and taught in textbooks for so long that that. The, the, the thinking is basically if you get dehydrated, um, it, it, you're more susceptible to the effects of heat. You're, you know, you're, it, it, you have less blood or your blood gets thicker. And so it's harder to pump your blood to, uh, around the body. And that's a, a key way that you dissipate heat is by sending warm blood to the, to the skin and, and radiating heat. And you may be, if you're dehydrated enough, you have less fluid to sweat out. And so 
there's there's lots of theoretical reasons for thinking that if you're dehydrated, you won't be able to cool yourself as effectively. And experimentally, you can, you can kind of confirm those ideas that, that yeah, if, if, if someone's really dehydrated and you make them exercise in, in, in hot conditions, they will get warmer. Their, their core temperature will rise more than someone who is not dehydrated. The thing is that the differences are very, very subtle. So it's, it's a statement that's true. The question is whether it's actually relevant for, you know, avoiding heat stroke. Is dehydration, you know, when people get heat stroke, is it, oh, if only they'd drunk more, they would have stayed cooler? And the evidence, as I read it at least, is, is that that's not actually the case, that dehydration is seldom the, the key factor in heat stroke. Heat stroke has to do with a number of other risk factors, uh, but the, the most important thing is how hard you're working and for how long. If, if you go and, and run really hard uh, on a hot day, your body's going to heat up, and in some people, you may even overheat. And the, what's, what's really telling is that heat stroke is probably is generally more likely in a short race like a 10k than a long race like a marathon. Now a marathon you'll get dehydrated, but you won't you know you're less likely to suffer heat stroke because in a marathon you can't sprint for a whole marathon. You can you you have to go relatively slowly so you don't get quite as hot as you do in a 10k where you can go really hard. So you can get hotter in a 10k even though it's a shorter race and you're less likely to get dehydrated. So there's still a lot of debate about this, so I don't want to you know make it make it sound like the answers are final. But my, certainly, the message I take away from the research is that heat is heat and hydration is hydration, and they're they're, they're less intertwined than than we might have thought. And of course, you also have a big chapter on nutrition, which is something that, to judge by the running magazines, websites, and social media, pretty much everyone is obsessed with all the time. So I wanted to start by defining a term that gets thrown around a lot, including in your book, and it has to do with fuel. What is bonking? <laughs> yeah, that's well. Uh, ask ten people, and you'll get eleven different definitions of, of bonking. Um, bonking, uh, okay, on a subjective level, bonking is let's say you're running a long race, uh, and you you know it's it's hard. Certainly, when you get to the second half of the race, it's feeling increasingly hard. But there comes a point where there's a discontinuous increase, or there sometimes comes a point where there's a discontinuous increase in how hard it feels. Where you go from feeling like, yeah, this is pretty hard. It's seven out of ten hard, seven out of ten hard, and all of a sudden it jumps to nine or ten out of ten, and you're like, oh my god, I I can barely keep walking. You've you've hit the wall. You've bonked. Now, what causes bonking? Most the, the most common answer is that you've run out of fuel. You've you've you, you're you're running along and your fuel tank suddenly hit empty, and all of a sudden you're you're basically scraping along on fumes. Um, in practice, I think there's a lot of different things that can cause what people describe as a bonk. And so for me, um, in, you know, running a marathon, the feeling of bonking, I think, was associated with actually muscle damage in my legs. I have a, I've, I, my background is running shorter races, middle distance races. So I have a sort of bouncy stride that takes a toll on my quads. And so trying to run a marathon uh, is by, by the time I got to 20 miles, um, my quads were shot. And so I reached the point where I was really not trying that hard, but I was in a lot of pain and I slowed way down. If you look at my splits, it's a classic bonk. I'm running along at a pretty steady pace and then all of a sudden it's like I fall off a cliff. But I don't think that was a, a fuel-related bonk. So that's a long answer. I guess bonking is when you blow up and the most common explanation is because you run out of fuel, but it's not the only explanation. Yeah, I would say my personal definition of bonking would be the one time I cried in a race. <laughs> um, and it was definitely a fuel-related thing. I wasn't eating before I ran a half marathon. And at the time, I was like, I'm hardcore, and I don't believe in Gatorade or fuel of any kind. And so I was well, running a race on nothing but water. 
crying is definitely one of the key diagnostic criteria. You can definitely <laughs> confirm the diagnosis at that point. And well, yeah, crying you know, and walking also because I couldn't, <laughs> you know, run. <laughs> yeah, and people get like mental fog and confusion. They can't remember the last, you know, five miles or whatever. So I think th- those tend to be fuel-related bunks, and it can it can be a lot more than just it feels hard. You, you it can be like like the world has just changed. Um, so the yeah, world becomes a very terrible, terrible place. Just to kind of telescope out uh, of all these, you know, very detailed studies of lactic acid and you know hydration and fuel and two-hour marathons. Why are we doing this? Why are we so obsessed? And I, and I say we deliberately because, you know, I'm this person too. Why are we so obsessed with doing things stronger, faster, better? Why are we so nuts with the limits of human performance? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And so uh, anyone who runs or bikes or swims has had that moment, you know, you're out on a run and you're like, why am I, why am I doing this? Why am I making myself suffer? And I think there's a bunch of different answers. I mean, on one level, there's there's things like brain chemicals, like endorphins. I think the 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 discomfort during the during a run or during exercise is often compensated or even overcompensated by the feeling of well being that comes afterwards. So I think there's some some really strong behavioral um, or, or you know neurochemical reasons that 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 people get into this. Um, but more generally, you know, as I was writing this book, one of the things I was really reflecting on was this idea that limits that feel very physical and very quantifiable to us are, are in a lot of cases, are, are mediated by the brain and are elastic. So to me, I think that's why it's still fascinating to not, you know, you can get endorphins just by going out for a run, but why do so many of us go and enter into a marathon or, or, or some other sort of race or, or, or just try and figure out how far we can go or how fast we can go? And I think part of the reason is that this is not something that's easily predicted in advance. That, you know, you could imagine if you had a, a, a tallest person contest, like let's, let's see who's tallest. It would not be interesting because the results would always be the same. The finishing order would always be the same. And we'd know in advance, like, okay, well, I know how tall I am. So, you know, no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be two inches taller on the big day. What's interesting about endurance limits is that they are elastic. And so in a sense, every time you try and push your limits, it's an opportunity to find out how much you're going to have on that day. And and there's always the possibility that you're going to be a little bit better than you were before, um, that you're going to be able to push yourself a little harder. So that's, uh, you know, that's kind of what I walked away from this book with was the, the feeling that I, I started out trying, I started out, I really wanted to know what the limits were to, to know exactly where each, you know, where things like oxygen and heat and hydration, exactly how they limited my performance and in what ways I could change those limits. And by the finish of the, of the book, I was like, well, gosh, I don't really have any specific quantifiable answers. It's really hard to say exactly where those limits are, but that's actually a good thing. It's actually pretty cool that we don't know because that's what makes it interesting. Otherwise, we would just do one run and be done with it. We'd know what our limits were, but instead it's it's a new, it's a new ball game every time you step out the door. Keeps the romance in it. Exactly. Keeps things fresh. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show and nerding out with me about human performance. Thanks a lot, Bethany. It's uh, it's always fun to talk about this stuff. We've linked to more information about Alex Hutchinson and his book Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance at scienceforthepeople.ca. And when we get back, we'll delve into some of the mind games of human performance with scientist Lori Haas. Don't touch that pause button. While we take a break, we thought we'd recommend another podcast that you might enjoy. If you like science for the people, we think you'll also like Story Collider. 
Story Collider is about the human stories behind the science. Each week, tune in to hear scientists, science writers, comedians, and more tell stories that make you laugh, cry, and think. We've had many of the storytellers here on Science for the People, including Ed Young, Ben Lilly, Eric Vance, Brooke Burrell, Carl Zimmer, and actually even me. I'd like to recommend Story Collider's most recent podcast on innovation with Adam Rubin and the Rube Goldberg machine that definitely flamed out. It made me laugh out loud on the Metro this morning, and that's always a good sign. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. We've been talking about how our bodies and our brains allow us to perform shocking feats of endurance. But one of the things that helps athletes go the distance is the ability to focus. But what about mindfulness? You might not think that meditation has much of a place in our race, but some scientists disagree, and they're testing mindfulness techniques on competitive athletes. I'm here with Lori Hayes-Alessandro, a neuropsychologist at the University of California, San Diego. Lori, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Let's go ahead and start basic. What is mindfulness? Well, the most common definition that people tend to give is present moment awareness, Um, non-judgmental present moment awareness, that is. And really what this means is being in the moment. So not living in the past or thinking about what you did the day before or worried about what you need to do next, but rather kind of being where you're at in this moment and then not having any sort of a judgment or attachment to the experience that you're currently in. And how does this differ from simply kind of being aware of your body, because I'm thinking of athletes in particular, and we, because I am one, are always kind of aware of our bodies, like we're just aware of where they are in space. We're aware of the fact that my hamstrings are absolutely killing me right now. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, how does mindfulness differ from kind of being aware of your body at any given time? Well, I I think that 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 is part of mindfulness. So having the, it's not just awareness of your own thoughts, but it's awareness of your emotional experience. It's awareness of your physical experience. And, and part of that is, okay, my, my leg is killing me. Uh, but I think that, and you can have that experience and that can be a mindful experience, but it wouldn't, the, the non judgmental part of this would be like, okay, well, I'm having extreme pain in my left leg and that's fine. That's my experience at this moment. It's not, you know, who I'm going to be, uh, for the rest of my life. So just because I have this leg pain doesn't mean tomorrow I'm going to have this leg pain or it doesn't mean that, you know, I won't be able to run the race that I've been training for, for, you know, the past two or three months. And so it can very much be awareness of the thoughts, uh, awareness of your emotions, and also awareness of your body. And why might this be especially important for competitive athletes? You know, they they do have this kind of common bodily awareness. They tend to know where their bodies are in space. They tend to know kind of what's going down with themselves at any given time. Why might mindfulness be especially important for competitiveness? Well, I think for competitiveness and for, for athletes, what's tends to happen is, you know, there's, there's always challenges in, in any given sort of athletic performance. And so maybe something, um, that maybe in a race or something that you're training for or experiencing is, is unanticipated. And then that can sort of throw you off sort of your trajectory and, and sort of interrupt, uh, whatever it is that you're doing. And, and that can lead to sort of non-present, uh, moment awareness thoughts or, or sort of, sort of getting out of that sort of, state of being in in the present moment. And so with athletes, it's, you know, to be a, sex, a 
a successful athlete, you really need to be able to sort of anticipate and, and react uh, very efficiently to certain situations. And part of that is to is sort of let go of the experience and kind of anticipate and then prepare yourself for what's to come, if and that so makes sense. You did a scientific study looking at mindfulness training to help athletes deal with kind of these unexpected stressors. And I wondered if you could start by describing the stress that you gave them, because it sounds horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we have, um, we have a, a interoceptive um, task that we use. And so basically what that means, what interoceptive means is, is body awareness. And so uh, any sort of bodily experience that you may be going through, whether it's hunger, whether you have a tickle in your throat or your foot is, is itching you, that awareness to the body is called interoception. And uh, it's a very robust task. And basically what that means is if we put somebody in the scanner and we do this task uh, while they're in the scanner, it produces very um, significant and reliable brain response. And so in this task, what we're doing is we're putting somebody into a brain scanner, an MRI scanner, and we are restricting their uh, their breath and restricting their, their breathing load, essentially. The, the oxygen level and sort of the more uh, basic concepts of, of breathing and the experience of breathing is not changing, but it feels as though you cannot breathe. And so it basically it feels as though you're breathing through a tiny straw, so like a, a coffee straw. And, and, and the idea is to sort of have the person have the experience of, of restricted breathing or difficulty sort of breathing air in, which can be extremely stressful for, for individuals. It definitely doesn't feel like you're going to die or, or something horrible is going to happen to you, but it, it is not a comfortable uh, experience to go through. And so and you so, took these people and you Restricted their breathing, but you did this mm -hmm. before and after you trained them in mindfulness, right? Yes, yes. So this was with a group of, of BMX athletes and uh, for the USA national team and their coach at the time, uh, James Herrera, uh, came, you know, came to me and my colleagues, Dr. Martin Paulus uh, and um um, Steve um, Hickman, excuse me, Dr. Steve Hickman, and really said, oh, look, I've, I've got these amazing athletes, and uh, they, they are sort of the, in the top of their field, and there still seems to be these instances or these situations where they're kind of uh, getting off the, their game, and they're not performing at the level that we know that they can perform at, and we think that mindfulness may be particularly useful for them. And so we developed a mindfulness-based program that was really um, had mindfulness in the basic MBR, MBSR tenets at its core. Uh, and we included uh, a scientific component to the program as well as uh, highly engaging and experiential tasks. So we have your basic mindfulness uh, concepts such as uh yeah, mindful breathing, uh, mindful yoga, and we've added these. Ex we added these experiential exercises. So, for example, uh, we added in a breathing restriction task to uh, one of our uh, twenty to thirty minute experiential exercises. We added in a um, ice bucket challenge where we have the uh, athletes put their hand in a bucket of ice and, and pay attention to their thoughts or to uh, what they may be experiencing at that time. Uh, and we also added in um, mindfulness-based uh, mindfulness-based exercises that were really specific to the um, to the sport itself. And so we uh, sat down with the athletes and we talked to them about okay, what's 
you know, how, how, what does your sport look like? Um, you know, how long does it take you to get up to the start line? What happens at the start line? How long does the actual event last? And, and where are you at for the recovery? And we, we worked with them to come up with very specific mindfulness exercises for them in the moment uh, as right before they're getting ready to actually uh, participate or sort of compete in, in their sport. And so we developed an eight week program for them uh, that included all of these facets of basic mindfulness, experiential exercises, and then mindfulness-based practices that were specific to their sport. And we scanned their brains before and after this training. And what we found really was that <clears throat> for the um, for the athletes, they had a, and this is actually something that we found in other studies looking at elite uh, athletes and looking at elite athletes out of the context of mindfulness-based training. And what we saw was that during the, so I should back up a second. So this, we have this breathing restriction task and, um, the task is designed such that we can look at the anticipation period. And what that means is we have a 10 to 15 second, second interval where we're looking at the brain's response before and while it thinks it's getting ready to engage in this restricted breathing. I don't, I hope that makes sense. But basically we have about 15 seconds where the brain is kind of amping up for the breathing restriction. We're able to look at that anticipation. So you tell them all, it's kind of, they have a sign ahead of time. It's they not do, just and suddenly it's, you can't breathe. It's okay. You won't be able to breathe in right. five, you know. Exactly. But it, it only occurs in a, a much smaller portion of those times. So we have an anticipation period, but we're not always following that up with a breathing restriction uh, time period, essentially. Uh, and so um, we were able to look at the anticipation. And what we found with the mindfulness training in these elite athletes was that their the brain areas that are involved in that body awareness, that interoceptive awareness, uh, which are the insula and the anterior cingulate cortex, they ramped up in uh, in activation during the anticipation period after the mindfulness-based training. So basically what this is telling us and how, what, how we interpreted this sort of ramping up or amplification with regions is that mindfulness is uh, allowing these individuals to better anticipate a stressor. So they, they're having greater body awareness during this anticipation period, essentially. And this is something actually that we have found in other very extreme athletes. So uh, high endurance sort of, um, uh, I forget what the adventure racers, those types of individuals that go on uh, races for about five or six days at a time. Uh, and, and their brain response actually looked very similar to that. So they're, what it's showing us is that this mindfulness-based training is resulting in greater anticipatory responses within the brain regions involved in body awareness. We also found, though, that during the um, the post-breathing condition, so this is, uh, so you have the anticipation period, you have the breathing restriction period, and then you have a recovery period that um, the same brain regions were actually um, increased during that sort of uh, recovery period as well. And so how we interpret this is that these increased activation during this anticipation period may help the brain anticipate and therefore recover more efficiently from these stressful experiences. Now, you mentioned which, that mm -hmm. these, you know, these people are already endurance athletes and you mentioned that they were mm -hmm. very similar to these very long distance kind of runners or long distance mm -hmm. cyclists. Um, I mean, 
could it be that these people already had an advantage? You know, they're already athletes. They already have that interoceptive awareness. I mean, do you think, is, has there been any thing to compare them against people who are not athletes? So, well, there's, there's two things I can comment on here. The, the first is we did a pre and post scan with these individuals. So there was clearly change before and after mindfulness. Yes, they, they are elite athletes. But as you know, being an athlete, you always want to improve and there's always room to sort of, uh, to, to be a better performer. And, and I, I will say that, um, you know, most athletes, 90% of their focus is from the neck down. They don't do a lot of mind training or sort of, uh, sort of mindfulness or awareness training in terms of where their thoughts are going or potentially, you know, where they're at with their emotions. And so, um, I think that there's always, there's always going to be room for improvement, even if you are the best of the best in your field. And any athlete, I think, would sort of, you know, rush to have that improvement and, and to be better than they are. But, you know, with our study, uh, we did show a pre-post change. So what that means is before mindfulness, there was less activation in these brain regions. And after mindfulness, there was greater activation. Uh, our, there, there's a shift to greater activation following this mindfulness-based intervention. There's also other studies that, that look at the same task, uh, where we've looked at studies in both, um, uh, Marines, um, Navy SEALs, and these high endurance sort of, uh, elite, uh, adventure racers, where as a, you know, as a group, they're all showing a similar pattern of, of uh, increased insula and anterior cingulate activation in, in the anticipation period of this breathing load task. And if we do uh, another or similar study and we look at individuals with, say, anxiety disorders or substance use disorders or even depression, these individuals are showing, uh, the uh, decreased activation during the anticipation period. So while we might not be doing a direct comparison in these studies, there's clearly evidence out there to show that elite performers' brains are responding in a very specific way in individuals who maybe potentially struggle with things like anxiety, depression, uh, who we know are not uh, um, potentially functioning at that same level are showing sort of uh, the reverse brain activity, uh, our brain activation patterns. Now, you also, you know, that you gave them this restricted breathing task. That's a stressor. It is. Even mm -hmm. if you're an athlete, it is. It, that is stressful. Did you measure any of the aspects of stress before and after training, like blood cortisol or heart rate changes? Did you look at that? Unfortunately, not in this study. Um, we did not look at uh, any sort of the of the more biological markers of the stress response. Um, we have self-report questionnaires here that are showing, um, you know, obviously changes in their their perceived mindfulness and changes in their. Um, you know, attention and their focus. Uh, but of course, that's really subjective. And they're saying, okay, yes, I completed this mindfulness course. And wow, I have more mindfulness. Uh, we have done other studies looking at this MPEAK protocol, where we were um, did a before and after study with um, Marines, active duty Marines, where we did have uh, more of the biomarkers of the stress response. And in these individuals, they really, we did have actual changes with um, their, uh, their heart rate recovery was improved following the mindfulness 
uh, based training or the MP type program. And they also had a lower neuropeptide Y concentration after the training as well. But so there are sort of more biological markers of greater recovery to, um, to stressful situations, to stressful situations. Yeah. And you also mentioned that, you know, people did have different subjective ratings because they knew they had just gone through mindfulness training. Is right. it possible, you know, these people served as their own control. Is it possible that there is a placebo effect going on? Could they just be getting used to the protocol or being like, Oh, I totally had this mindfulness effect. I'm totally more mindful. Um, I think that the, that, that clearly, that, that definitely can happen in self-report. I mean, I, I think that it is a very subjective experience, but it can also be a true reflection of somebody's experience. But, uh, you know, as a psychologist, uh, I know that people, including myself, are, are not very good at, you know, looking and, and being uh, objective in terms of their interpretations of their experiences. So I, I clearly think that the subjective ratings could definitely be um, uh, a placebo effect. Um, that's that's the case for uh, a number of of. Uh, They've demonstrated that a lot, but I think the the changes in in brain activation and the the neuroimaging changes and the uh, sort of biological changes that we're seeing in terms of resting heart rate recovery and then the uh, neuropeptide Y uh, plasma changes that those are really more suggestive of objective changes within the brain that result from mindfulness. And there's also unrelated to my own direct studies, there's also research out there that is looking at white matter changes, gray matter changes in mindfulness. And they're showing increased connectivity, increased gray matter in individuals that meditate. Uh, we know of neuroplasticity. We know that we can, that the brain is not this fixed state and that we can exert changes within the brain. Uh, and uh, I think that those studies speak more specifically to the changes that actually occur within the brain as a result of mindfulness. That there, there is great more gray matter after you do mindfulness training in the insula, well, which is remarkable. Also wondering, you know, these people served as their own controls. You know, mindfulness training is kind of a, like, you, you know, when you're getting mindfulness training, mm -hmm. is there, do you think there's a way to do a behavioral control for this mindfulness training that you could do a comparison with like a control behavioral training assay? Yes. And we, and actually I should have mentioned that we did that in the Marine study that I was talking about earlier. So we had a group that got mindfulness. We had a group that had, um, that had no training. And then in another study uh, that we did a follow-up study, we had mindfulness training and we did a sort of uh, control group that received the equal amount of time in sort of more of a physical activity sort of, uh, training program where, you know, it matched up with the, how many hours they were actually receiving mindfulness training. And this was much more based in sort of, uh, physical science and, and, and exercise. And we're still showing these changes. We're still showing changes within the brain. So even in a control situation, uh, which we did not have for the BMX study, it's kind of, it's, it's actually pretty hard to find, uh, BMX athletes and, and to, to, you know, with an N of seven, we, we got everyone that we could and it's, it would be hard to find another N of seven BMX, uh, cyclist, uh, to do the comparison. Uh, but, uh, we have demonstrated that in, uh, in two other studies, at least with the, with the Marine population. Well, Lori, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about the study. Yeah, thank you.
We've linked to Lori Hayes Alessandro's study on mindfulness and athletes at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're over there, check out our links to Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show, tell us about your own feats of endurance, or leave us a review. You'll also find links to our Patreon page, where your monthly donation can help keep us afloat. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 